Uh, John is a student and has been a Christian for a few years now. And if you ask him, he could give you a pretty good outline of the gospel. Uh, He's involved in church and CU, tries to share his faith with his friends, and goes to Bible studies and prayer meetings when he can. Uh, Yet for John, he measures the quality of his relationship with God in terms of his recent obedience to God. If he's had a good week, reading the Bible on his own, uh, resisting temptation fairly often, well then things are going well. He finds it easier to read the Bible. He feels God will listen when he prays, and so he does so with confidence. Uh, But if he's had a bad week, uh, he hasn't touched a Bible, he's sinned again and again, well then God seems distant. He doesn't feel able to pray. Understanding God's word seems an insurmountable challenge, and so he doesn't try. And that makes him feel even more guilty, and God is even more distant, and so it spirals on for weeks. Rachel was really excited in her early years as a Christian. She had a great group of Christian friends, and together they talked frequently about the gospel. They prayed for their non-Christian friends. They had a real unity and love and zeal. And yet as Rachel grew in her faith, she became more discerning about the things she heard. And she began to be able to recognize truth from error, And so she began to be more critical of the other Christians she knew and the other churches in her area. But before long, she began to look down on those who had been Christians longer than her and yet could not as clearly articulate the Christian faith. She was suspicious of those who attended churches where the teaching was not as good as at her church. And while she knew that in her head that faith in Christ is the only criterion for salvation, she has actually adopted another unspoken list of requirements in the way she views herself and others. Peter is a mature Christian, a small group leader in his church. He's a committed Christian. It's the most important thing in his life. Yet when Peter opens up the Bible, he knows he's in for a tough time. Every passage seems to underline his sinfulness so that he is often left feeling guilty before God. When he comes to church, he listens attentively to the sermons, he takes notes to help him concentrate and so he can look over them later, although he rarely does. And on a typical Sunday, his take-home points uh, will be the applications of things he needs to change in his life. It's a growing list. Jenny is worried. You see, she's well known as a Christian, both amongst her non-Christian friends and family and in her local church. Indeed, she's on the student team, she's always involved in what's going on, Occasionally you'll even see her up at the front on a Sunday, uh, leading the prayers. And yet Jenny knows that beneath the keen Christian facade, there's a different story. She struggles to pray. She has doubts about her faith. Uh, She would be mortified if people could see what she was really like. And so she doesn't tell them. If people at church ask her how things are going, they're going fine, thank you. George is at school, he's in his teens, and he goes along to church with his parents on a Sunday. He goes to the youth group that the church runs as well. Uh, George isn't a Christian at the moment, a fact that some of the time he admits to himself, although most of the time he's just not really sure. He's confused. He certainly looks like a Christian. 
He does all the things that other people who call themselves Christians do. He's got a pretty good handle on the Christian message, certainly enough to fool the average youth group leader. And yet he knows that whilst he's happy enough coming to church and seeing his friends at the youth group, for George there's no joy. He remembers hearing a talk which said that the word gospel means good news, but it's never seemed good news to him. Some mistakes are obvious. Some are so easy to fall into. And one of the easiest is legalism. Legalism says, my relationship with God is based on my performance. And yet it never says it like that. It's always more subtle. So subtle that we can live under it for years without even noticing It is legalism that unites those five different people and their situations. But that is not all that unites them. Because although I've given them different names, the truth is that they were or are, all five of them, me. I was that teenager who knew the gospel but didn't see the good news that lay behind it. I was the Christian judging others by their orthodoxy and lifestyle I was the student thinking that he needed to earn God's love. I was the leader who saw the Bible more as a message of condemnation than of grace. I was the one who thought being honest about my struggles and my sin would mean that others would think I was not a real Christian. Legalism has been one of my greatest enemies. And although my examples are taken from my life, I wonder... Could I have taken similar ones from yours? Because I am not alone. It strikes me that legalism is a particularly prevalent danger amongst evangelical Christians in Britain today. And it has been an enduring difficulty throughout the history of the church. So much so that the whole letter of Galatians that we embark upon tonight is written in response to it. So turn with me to chapter 1. It's page 1168, where we see what Paul has to say to these Galatian Christians. There's some debate about who they actually are, but most likely I think is that it's the churches Paul visited in Acts 13 and 14, Antioch, Iconium, Lystra and Derby, amongst others. And we heard one of Paul's sermons to them in our other reading. And once they have heard and responded to the gospel of Christ, false teachers have come in with a new message. Don't listen to what Paul told you. They said, he's not a real apostle, and he's only told you part of what you needed to know. Jesus and the cross are all well and good, but to be one of God's people, you also have to keep some of the Old Testament laws. In particular, they said Gentile Christians would have to be circumcised. But for Paul, that is to reject the entire gospel and to replace it with legalism. A legalism that says my relationship with God depends on what I do. A legalism that cannot save. And so in the letter, we see Paul defend his apostleship and what we'll concentrate on next time. Uh, We see Paul restate the true gospel and we see him expose and critique the false gospel of legalism. And those two gospels could not be more different. 
For the one offers freedom, whilst the other brings slavery. The one offers adoption as God's children, the other leaves us as slaves to sin. The one offers eternal life, the other leads to destruction. Indeed, so important is the issue that Paul launches straight in with it in these opening verses with what is the most stinging rebuke of all his letters. And so as we look at these first ten verses, we'll see both the wonder of the true gospel and the wickedness of the false gospel. First then, the wonder of the true gospel. Have a look again at verse 3. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. What then is the true gospel? Well, first of all, it is grace and peace to us from God. Now, peace is a hard word to understand, I know, because it gets used so much in other contexts. We talk about having a moment's peace. We talk about world peace and peace envoys. We talk about inner peace. This peace is none of those things. First and foremost, it is peace between us and God. Romans 5 says, Since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And this is peace with God that is no uh, reluctant truce, like a temporary ceasefire in the Middle East. No, instead it is a lasting, eternal peace, where twice in these verses God is described as our Father. And once we know that we are at peace with God, it has implications. For a start, we need not be anxious about anything, so that Philippians 4 the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. That's real inner peace. And once we're at peace with God, we will also be at peace with his people. So that in Galatians 5, peace is one of the fruit of the Spirit that is the hallmark of the Christian life. Peace with God, peace within, peace with others. But don't forget that Christians are at war. Our struggle is against the spiritual forces of the devil and the sinful nature that still remains and must be put to death. But now it is a war we face with God as our ally, his spirit working within us. And it is a war we face together with other Christians, helping each other. That's what chapters 5 and 6 of Galatians are going to be about when we get to them. So the true gospel is about peace. It is also a work of grace. That is, that it it is a gift from God. Undeserved by us, but given by him. Free to us, yet at great cost to God. For, as it goes on, God's grace is in Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins. (laughs) That's what lies at the heart of the cross, the heart of the gospel. And I'm sure that for many here it will be an old and much-loved truth. But for others it may be new to you tonight. It is wonderful. Jesus' death on the cross was not just to provide 
a good example of self-sacrifice or to show empathy with a suffering world. No, it was for our sins. It's that our sins are our turning away from and rejecting God have been placed onto Jesus. And so he has died and been cut off from God for our sake so that we have peace with him. It's a truth we'll keep coming back to in Galatians. Chapter 3, verse 13 puts it this way. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. So Jesus dies on the cross and next phrase, he does it to rescue us from the present evil age. Rescue. (laughs) That's the wonder of the true gospel. It means deliverance. It's the word used of the Exodus in the Old Testament where God brings his people out of slavery in Egypt to freedom in the promised land. And so too here. The gospel is freedom instead of slavery. God's children instead of the devil's slaves. We are rescued as it says here, from the present evil age. Uh, The Bible divides history into two ages, the present age and the age to come. And because we live between Jesus' resurrection and his return, uh, we live in the overlap of those two ages. The age to come has been inaugurated, whilst the present age has not yet passed away. And so for the Christian, Christ's rescue delivers us from the control of the powers which dominate the present age and instead frees us to live in the age to come, guided by the Spirit. It's the same point that we see in Romans chapter 12 when Paul urges Christians, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, this age, it's the same word, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. This then is the gospel, the true gospel. That by God's free gift of grace, Christ's death on the cross deals with our sin, brings us peace with God and frees us from slavery so that we can live by the Spirit. And it's so wonderful that what starts out as a summary ends up as a prayer of praise to our God and Father to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. That's the wonder of the true gospel. But now comes the wickedness of the false gospel. And I'm sure you must have been struck by the strong language of verses 8 and 9. Have a look again. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let him be eternally condemned. As we have already said, so now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted... Let him be eternally condemned. A curse called down on those who preach a different gospel to the true gospel. A curse that is universal. It doesn't matter if it's an angel from heaven, a man or a woman, even Paul and those with him themselves. And a curse that is unmistakable. He even repeats it to show that this is no hyperbole. This is not Paul having a bad day. The point is that truth matters because only the true gospel can save. 
And so preaching legalism, as these false teachers were doing, is calling on people to follow you into hell. And it was working. Don't be taken in by those who say that different faiths need to learn to respect each other. uh, That it doesn't really matter what you believe. Don't even get taken in by those who say that as long as you acknowledge Jesus somehow or other in your faith, you'll be okay. These people did that. No, truth matters. The gospel matters. And a false gospel is wicked. Because just look what it does. Verse 6. I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. The false gospel is wicked, first of all, because it deserts God. The word for desert there could be used of soldiers who desert their army or defect to the other side. It was used of men who changed sides in in politics or philosophy from one school to another. So here the Galatians are spiritual deserters, having gone over to the side of the enemy. And it is personal. They have deserted the one who called them by the grace of Christ. To start down the road of legalism is actually to turn our backs on God and to ignore all that he has done for us. It is to refuse to live in response to his grace. And you can do that through self-righteousness or through self-loathing. The self-righteous person approaches God in confidence because they think they've lived a good life. Of course I'm a Christian. Of course God is pleased with me, they think. Because I have a list of Christian things that I have done, sacrifices I have made on God's behalf. But they deserted God. God was there dying on the cross so that they could be forgiven and set free, but they're not looking. No, they're too busy concentrating on themselves. The self-loathing person approaches God in fear or in despair because they think they've been too bad. God will never be pleased with me, or at least not as pleased as he is with with other Christians, they think, because, because I have a list of Christian things that I haven't done, sacrifices that I haven't made. But they've deserted God. They've taken their eyes off the Lord Jesus and his death for their sins because they're too busy concentrating on themselves. That's what legalism does. It deserts God and replaces him with introspection. It's why ultimately legalism is just another form of self-worship. This is a point that uh, C.J. Mahaney makes in his book Living the cross-centred life. Let me read a paragraph to you. Legalism is essentially self-atonement for the purpose of self-glorification and ultimately for self-worship. It is the pinnacle of pride for me to assume that by my good works 
I could ever morally obligate God to forgive me, justify me, or accept me. Very helpful and very short. What a combination. The false gospel deserts God. It's wicked. But next it destroys joy. Because there's nothing to be joyful about. There is no good news in the false gospel. Because verse 7, it is really no gospel at all. Gospel means good news. I knew that as a teenager. I didn't really know what the good news was. The false gospel is no good news. Joy gone because of legalism. When the Galatians first were converted, they overflowed with joy. They were delighted with what God had done for them, amazed by their new status before God, the blessings poured out on them in Christ. But now we'll flick to chapter 4, verse 15. Paul says, What has happened to all your joy? Joy evaporates when grace is replaced with legalism. Do you lack joy in your Christian life? Has it become a duty, a burden, a drudge? Well then check yourself to see if you haven't slipped into legalism. It may be that you've always been under legalism, never trusting Jesus, but always trusting yourself instead. And so for long years now, you've carried around the chains of slavery. If that's you, it's not too late. Leave those chains at the cross. Look to Jesus, who died for our sins, to bring us peace through his grace. It's at the foot of the cross that you will find joy. For others, it may be that like the Galatians, you have trusted the true gospel, but now you see that you've been sleepwalking into legalism so that your joy is gone. Well, come back. Come back to the cross, to the grace of Christ, and rest there, knowing that God's love for you could not be stronger and his purpose for you could not be better. This wicked false gospel deserts God and it destroys joy. And next it brings confusion, verse 7. Evidently some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. This legalism, it left the Galatians not knowing where they stood anymore. Not knowing where they stood with God, not knowing what they needed to do, not knowing what to make of Paul. It's because legalism attacks our confidence. It says salvation is not certain. You've got to make sure of it. And the real wickedness is that it makes salvation impossible. Because 3 verse 10, over the page, all who rely on observing the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law, and none of us will. And then finally, this false gospel pleases men and not God. 
back in chapter 1, verse 10, Paul's clear, isn't he, that the true gospel, his gospel, doesn't seek to please men. It's the false gospel that does. If you preach legalism, then the gospel has no offence. Look on at chapter 5, verse 11. Brothers, if I'm still preaching circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offence of the cross has been abolished. The offence of the cross is that you and I are not good people and that there is nothing we can do that would make us good people. That if it were up to us, peace with God would be an impossibility. We would be his enemies for all eternity. And those aren't comfortable truths, are are they? And so legalism whispers its flattery in our ears. You can make a difference. You deserve God's love. And yet even while it's whispering in our ears, it is shackling us into slavery and removing us from our only chance of salvation and removing us from the place where God has already shown his love for us in full the cross of Christ. That's the false gospel, and it is wicked. It deserts God, it destroys joy, it brings confusion, it pleases man, not God, and spiritually it kills us dead. So don't believe it. Instead, believe and cling to the true gospel. A gospel that is forged at the cross and is wonderful beyond our imagination. The gospel that brings true freedom. True freedom. True freedom is not what is on offer to us this evening. It is what we already have. So don't mistake it for chains. And don't replace it with chains. Don't listen to legalism from from others or from within yourself. That would rob you of your joy, your hope and your crown. No, instead, remember the grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. As we finish, let's take a moment of silence to pray in these truths. It may be that you want to acknowledge before God the way you've turned your relationship with him into a joyless routine. It may be you want to ask his help to live under grace this coming week. It may be that you've never prayed to him before and you want to thank him for the rescue that Jesus has provided for you on the cross. But whatever we do, let's make sure we also take time to thank God for the wonder of the gospel and of his free gift of grace. So let's take a moment of silence together.